All right, today we'll be in Luke chapter 11. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, find your way to Luke chapter 11. And we're going to pick up with the second part of a message that we began last week called Ousting Your Outside Only Religion. I'm just going to start with a little anecdote. I heard in September of 2016, so just a couple of years back, Lawrence Ripple was a man's name who proved, this man proved that he was willing to give up his own freedom in order to escape the indifferences that he had with another individual. So this man who lived in Kansas gave a note to a Kansas City bank teller that demanded cash and warned that he had a gun. Now when this man, when Ripple received nearly $3,000 from the bank, he then sat down in the bank's lobby as he awaited the police to come and arrest him. He later explained to investigators that he had told his own wife that he'd rather be at jail than at home. Now, I'm not going to ask for a display of hands to see how many of you have been there because I don't think I want to know the answer. But in Ripple's case, he didn't quite get the judgment that he wanted. You see, the judge actually sentenced him to six months of confinement, but his confinement was to be spent at home and not in the jail. You know, sometimes those individuals that we would expect to get along the most turn out to be the ones who are at most odds with one another. In a marriage or any other family or work-oriented sort of relationships, these sorts of conflicts tend to come because of our own self-centeredness, our own combination of between both ends of the relationship of our own selfish sort of desires. But other conflicts go a little bit deeper than that. To a non-Christian, for example, it would probably seem as though followers of Jesus might only be concerned about living good, outwardly moral lives that are acceptable to God. A lot of people think that's all we're about, that we're here to spur one another on in living holy lives, lives that look good on the outside, lives that keep the moral obligations and keep the rules. And that's an important aspect of what we do together. But there's something so much deeper than that, so much more important than that when we gather and when we spur one another on that we ought to be taking consideration up in our own lives. But to the outsider, it may seem like we only want people to act right And if that's your mentality, then you might wonder why we Christians can't just coexist as the popular bumper sticker commands with individuals of other religions that likewise urge, at least in the outsider's perspective, a similar decent moral living from their adherents. Non-Christians often have the impression that Jesus simply came to teach us how to live as good moral human beings. But if that was the case, then we would expect him along, to get along with the people that, in fact, he did not. People that, in fact, he had great conflict with, as we'll see in our passage here today. In fact, when Jesus encountered those who were living to the highest moral standards of his day, 
He didn't jump on board with them to initiate a crusade of morality. Instead, he called them out for being rotten on the inside in spite of their outward appearances. And last Sunday, we began a look at the final 14 verses of Luke chapter 11. In part one of this message, I've titled, Ousting Your Outside-Only Religion. And there, the Dr. Luke picked us up off of the road between Galilee and Jerusalem as Jesus has now set his face to go in that direction. And he sets us down in the midst of this lunch gathering. And it's a lunch gathering where ultimately Luke doesn't list all the individuals who are there. Probably some of Jesus' disciples came along. There are two individuals who are really involved in the conversation that happens here, though. One of them is a Pharisee, and then the other is a lawyer. And we talked a little about, a bit about who these individuals were last week. But just a reminder, the Pharisees were the uber-religious of their time. I mean, they were the ones who were fastidious, who were holding one another accountable, who were spurring one another on to keep every ceremonial obligation that was built upon the law. Now, many of these were the traditions of men that they themselves had established, but they were very fastidious to ensure that they were keeping every letter of that law. And in so doing, they became kind of the police force of everyone who was not living according to the law as they thought it ought to be lived out. And so they were constantly condemning others. They were constantly giving the impression to others that they were not good enough. Because they couldn't keep the letter of the law the same level as the Pharisees did. And they were quick to condemn. They were quick to establish themselves as a higher level of authority in a religious sense. Establishing before others that they were in a greater position with God. They were quick to do that sort of thing. Because they felt like they had earned that sort of standing. And then there was this lawyer, and we talked last week about how the lawyers were this particular group among the scribes. Actually, many of the lawyers were Pharisees as well, but they knew the law of Moses well. They knew the Old Testament scriptures as we have them well, and as a matter of fact, they became the legal experts. So if individuals wanted to know, how should I live in accordance with God's revealed law, they would come to the lawyers, and the lawyers would then have the responsibility of interpreting God's law for them in a way that showed them this is the way that you ought to live. And these two groups are really closely related because when the, when the lawyers would reveal, when they would make this interpretation of God's revelation, I should say, they would codify that. They would, they would record that and it would become then a ceremonial sort of obligation. Individuals would be obligated to live by their interpretation of that law. So when the Pharisees are living their fastidious, religious, outside-only sort of life, they were living the interpretations of what the scribes had put together. And so these groups are heavily tied together. And the Pharisee, who appears in this passage, invites Jesus to lunch. So as Luke drops us off in this setting, we find that Jesus is gathered around the table with the hyper-legalists of his day. But if you were expecting Jesus to only be about outward moral reform, then you'd be surprised that Jesus doesn't find allies in these individuals. Instead, he introduces some tension 
with them when he refuses to obey the ceremonial customs that they have established. As Jesus is invited to lunch, he goes straight to the table without dipping his hands in the water as this ceremonial form of cleansing. We talked last week about how they would do this before meals just in case they might have touched something unclean like a Gentile or something that a Gentile had touched. And so they follow this religious observance to say that I want my hands to be pure in God's sight when I go to eat. It had nothing at all to do with hygiene. It had to do with their desired holiness beyond any and everyone else. And Jesus refuses this custom. And when he does so, it astonishes his Pharisee host. And yet, instead of easing this tension... Jesus continues, as we read through this passage, to ratchet up the tension in this relationship through these six statements of woeful warning, of impending judgment upon these outside-only religious zealots who are gathered around the table with him. So look with me now, if you will, at Luke chapter 11. We'll start in verse 37. If you're able, I'd ask that you just stand that we might honor the reading of God's word together. And we're going to see here Luke 11, starting verse 37. Here's where we get dropped into this tense lunch meeting. Look with me now. Now when he, that is Jesus, had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs. And the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. 
you yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. When he left, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue of those who are gathered with him at this meal in verse 39. His host is surprised that Jesus hasn't washed away any potential uncleanliness from his hands. But Jesus makes it clear in verse 39 that the real issue is the uncleanliness of those who are gathered around the table with him. That's why he compares them with common dishes, a cup and a platter that had been cleaned on the outside, but they remained dirty on the inside. Now, none of us, when we go to a restaurant, you know, when when the plate comes out with the steaming hot food on it, you don't flip the plate over to see if it's clean on the bottom, right? We really don't care what's happening on the bottom. But if there is a dark smudge of some sort on the inside of that plate, and it looks like it's leaking down the side, and it doesn't match what you've ordered to eat, likelihood is... You're going to say, could you maybe refresh this dish of mine, right? And that's what Jesus is conveying to these individuals. So this very simple sort of analogy. They've cleaned the outside of the dish, but the inside remains dirty. Because while the Pharisees may look clean on the outside through their hyper-religious, good, moral living, Jesus, who knows what is in a man, we read in John's Gospel, sees That on the inside, these individuals are full of robbery and wickedness. And so he calls for them to be cleansed on the inside. And last week, we began our examination of seven reasons why you must oust your outside-only religion that, that we found here in this passage. And by way of review, let me quickly recap the first three of those reasons why you must oust your outside only religion. The first was this. Outside-only religion prevents lasting peace. We saw this last week, how the Pharisees were so accustomed to this tradition of washing their hands that this one Pharisee, when he saw that one person gathering around his table did not observe this custom, was astonished. I mean, it threw him off track for his day when Jesus didn't follow the custom that he was expecting before the meal. And we saw that there's no peace in trying to do enough good works to be before God in a right state. Because we cannot earn that on our own. We cannot earn righteousness before him. We cannot make ourselves clean enough that we would be acceptable before God. And we find that there's no peace in an effort that seeks to constantly try to live out a life that's going to earn righteousness before God because you'll never get there. You'll never be clean enough. You'll constantly be wondering, will I ever be clean enough? And you should be wondering that because none of us can wash away the stain of sin that is ours to own. But when you give your heart to the Lord, Jesus says in verse 41 that then all things become clean for you. And that enables you to live with a lasting peace. Secondly, we saw that you must oust your outside-only religion because outside-only religion misses God's greater mandates. 
In verse 42, Jesus called out the Pharisees with the first of what would be six consecutive woes, these woeful statements, as he remarked how they were tedious in their tithing of garden herbs like mint and rue, but they were callous in their disregard for greater God-given mandates like exercising justice and showing the love of God to their neighbors. Jesus informed these Pharisees that they should have carried out the greater mandates without neglecting their tithing. They should have focused on the inside and not just on the outside. Then thirdly, we saw that you must oust your outside-only religion because outside-only religion trades eternal peace for empty perks. That's why in verse 43, Jesus pronounced the second woe upon the Pharisees. And in that woe, he calls out their love for the chief seats in the marketplaces and respectful greetings. That, that is, they were caught up with the favor of men, both in the synagogues and the marketplaces, wherever they went, these Pharisees wanted the outward appearance that earned them high esteem in the eyes of others. They were content with these empty perks of looking religious on the outside with the respect of other people. Well, that catches us up now to verse 44. Well, we'll see now the fourth reason why you must oust your outside-only religion, which is this. Outside-only religion defiles its disciples. Outside-only religion defiles its disciples. As Jesus gives these Pharisees the third statement of woe in verse 44, he compares them to concealed tombs that people walk over unaware. Now, for context, you should know that the Old Testament had some strict provisions when it came to touching dead bodies, all right? One who touched a dead body would be defiled, and that individual would then be ceremonially unclean. You see, God wanted his people to remember that death was a continued, ongoing consequence of living under the curse of sin, and that individuals needed something to redeem them from that curse and it wasn't just touching a dead body that defiled an individual as a matter of fact we read in numbers nineteen sixteen this command anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days and then there was this seven-day sort of cleansing process that an individual had to go through in order to be clean, ceremonially clean, once again, after he had touched these things. So simply walking over a grave would be enough for someone to be ceremonially unclean, which in the life of the Jew meant that that individual could not go to the temple and gather among the assembly and worship the Lord. If you were ceremonially unclean, you were kept away from these things. You were cut off from worship with the people of God. So when the time of Passover came then, many individuals would come into Jerusalem. You can imagine at the Passover, people are coming from all around Israel to this holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as they're coming, many of those individuals have n never lived in Jerusalem themselves, so they don't know where the graves are in Jerusalem. Well, you know, obviously the Passover is a time of great worship. If I'm coming into town for the Passover, I don't want to step on a grave and make myself ceremonially unclean for seven days where I can't participate in the Passover. So what the Jews would do 
they would whitewash the ground where these graves were. They would put something over those graves so that individuals would have a demarcation of this is a place where I should not walk. So I don't unintentionally walk over a grave and make myself unclean and unable to worship in the Passover inadvertently. But when Jesus describes the condition of the Pharisees here in Luke chapter 11, he says they're like concealed tombs. He said, he's essentially saying they're like unmarked graves. They're like these graves that defile individuals when they touch them. And Jesus says that those poor people aren't even aware of what's happening to them when they encounter these individuals who are carrying out this outside-only sort of religion. And you know, that's what outside-only religion does. It puts on a good facade that makes it look like everything is good on the inside. Outside-only religion is kind of like the communication you do with your friends on Facebook, right? I mean, most of us aren't telling about the struggles and the trials of our wretched, sinful state on Facebook. Go try it. See how many likes you get, all right? Probably not going to be many, right? But, but we tend to put on this good facade like life is great and we've got it all together and my clan's better than your clan, perhaps. But that's what outside-only religion does. It says, look at these rules I'm keeping. Come near and experience a righteousness like mine. Come near and follow my example. Come near and keep my rules. But in the end, outside-only religion defiles its disciples. Because while an outside-only religion may look good on the outside, it's full of death on the inside. A religious-looking life that hasn't been transformed by the saving power of God within you will only lead you deeper into your confidence in an insufficient covering of a defilement that offers no lasting hope. It's like a grave with a rotting body. That's what's on the inside of one who does not yield all that he is and all of his eternity to Christ. And and not to say, you know, perhaps that's you. I I know I will say that I spent a good portion of my life with an outside-only sort of religion, just kind of giving lip service to Jesus when when the moment arose. But in reality, I was not walking with him. I would tell you that I was a Christian. I would give you the rituals that I had undergone. I would tell you about how I'd been in church growing up all my life and on the inside, though, I had never reconciled the fact that Jesus had come to be the Savior of my sins. I'd never yielded my life to him to say, Lord, whatever you want to do with me, you do it. And I was living an outside-only sort of religion. And that can be something that any of us can fall into. And you know, perhaps you're a regular at going to church. Maybe you study your Bible every day. Maybe you give generously every time the offering plate goes by. But if your heart is full of pride for yourself and you're full of contempt for your fellow man, you're merely observing the outward conventions of religion. And you're missing the realities of the death within that needs to be made alive through Christ. And an outside-only religion contaminates unsuspecting people. It turns off unbelievers and keeps them from the truth of the gospel. Because individuals either see that an outside-only religion is hypocrisy, and when they see that, they run away, or they adopt the hypocrisy, and they march alongside one another into a self-satisfied hell. 
And let me say that Jesus' woe here speaks to all of us. If you say that you are a Christian, you must know that we all touch other people's lives for better or for worse. Whether it's at home or at school or in the workplace, we all interact with others in ways that either disciple them to follow Jesus with their hearts committed to him or disciple them to follow something that is a cheap substitute. And the question we need to each ask ourselves is, am I being salt and light to those that I encounter each day? Or have I lost my saltiness and has my light grown dim? Am I living for God out of a heart that loves him and wants to follow his leading? Or am I merely going through the motions of an outside-only religion and keeping up the ceremonies? Do those who interact with me brush up against a concealed tomb, a hidden grave? And I'll tell you, one sure mark of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts is that we come to see ourselves as terrible sinners in the sight of God. We see that we deserve His judgment because of our pride and our selfishness and our rebellion. So instead of comparing ourselves with others and concluding, hey, I'm basically good because I'm better than that guy or that girl, instead of doing that, we compare ourselves with God and we conclude that no good thing dwells within us. And any hope of being good must come from the one who is greater than us, which I'm glad to report he richly offers to us. You see, outside-only religion defiles his disciples. That's the fourth reason you must oust your outside-only religion. Here's the fifth. Outside-only religion is content to condemn And I must admit that verse 45 is a little bit humorous to me. Maybe you'll see the humor in it as well. Because in that verse, this lawyer who has not spoken to this point in the conversation that Luke records gets his feathers a little bit ruffled. So he says to Jesus in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. It's as if this guy expects that Jesus is going to change what he's saying so that he won't hurt his feelings. And I remind you that it was the lawyers who were interpreting the law that these outside-only religious Pharisees were striving to live out. So, of course, when Jesus condemned the deeds of the one, he was likewise going after the interpretations and the lifestyle of the other. And, you know, there are times when it is right and when it is necessary to give an apology because you've hurt someone else's feelings. But there's also a time when you should not need to give an apology. And that's when you're standing upon the word of God. As Jesus models for us here, he doesn't back down and say, oh, I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings. Let me change my message. Let me soften the blow. Let me give you a warm, fuzzy message that makes you feel good about yourself and makes you think you're healthy, wealthy, and wise here and now. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes after the jugular. Just in case this lawyer still has some sort of notion that Jesus didn't intend to offend him, Jesus now aims his words of woe directly at the lawyer instead. And friends, hear me on this. If the word of God hurts your feelings, it's not the word of God that needs to change. 
If you find yourself in the midst of some sin that you would love to have explained away, you don't need some politician or some scholar to tell you that it's okay. It's not the word that needs to change. It's our lives that need to change. And Jesus gives a consistent testimony of that here. Many in the church in our day are confused into thinking that being good Christians means that we never upset anyone. They assume that a right-seated love for God and for our fellow man means that we will never offend anyone. Well, I'm here to tell you that sometimes real love must confront real sin. And Jesus is our example here. And when the lawyer says, you're insulting me, Jesus essentially says, here's why you are insulted. You're only focused on the outside. You're not exercising the heart of God. And specifically for the lawyers, they were missing the heart of God because of the burdens that they were placing on their fellow men. That's the essence of the fourth woe that Jesus issues here in verse 46. As he pronounces, woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, I've mentioned to you that these lawyers had the task of interpreting God's word for the nation of Israel. When the lawyers had interpreted the law, those interpretations were then placed in these extra-biblical books. They were held many times in higher esteem than the word of God that they had originated from. And you've simply got to hear an example of how these particular laws were fleshed out in in order to understand the sort of heavy burdens that men were carrying around in this day. Let me give you just an example. God's word called for his people to rest on the seventh day, just as God did in creation. And the Sabbath day was established to direct man's thoughts toward God as that man kept the day holy every week. But here's how the command of God was interpreted by these lawyers. On the Sabbath, they taught that an individual was not allowed to carry a burden in his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder, okay? But he could carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or in his ear or in his hair or in his wallet or between his wallet and his shirt or in the hem of his shirt or in the shoe in his sandal. Now that's only one component of an interpretation of the law regarding how one could carry a burden. Multiply that by all of the regulations of the Old Testament law and you'll understand how ordinary people were totally frightened and confused about what they could do and what they could not do when it came to the law of God. And on top of that, there were many loopholes that the lawyer knew how to capitalize on so that he could pretty much do whatever he wanted to do. We know know of some lawyers like that, do we not? For example, on the Sabbath, the lawyers determined that a man could only travel a thousand miles from his home. Oh no, not a thousand miles, that'd be a long travel. A thousand yards from his home. He could only travel a thousand yards from his home. But if a rope was tied across the end of the street from his house, then the end of the street became part of his residence and he could go a thousand yards beyond that. Or if before the Sabbath, a man left 
at any given location, enough food for two meals, that point technically became his residence, and he could go a thousand yards beyond that point. On the Sabbath, you couldn't tie a knot because that was work. But a woman could tie a knot in her girdle, so if you needed to draw water out of the well on the Sabbath, you couldn't tie a rope to the bucket, but you could tie a woman's girdle to the bucket to get the water out. And can you see how ridiculously complicated all of this became? It was way far beyond what God had commanded his people, and and individuals just did not have a clue of how to obey it all. And God gave us a law to drive us to his mercy. But these lawyers had no desire to lead individuals to his mercy. No, they were content to condemn. That's why Jesus says to them in verse 46, you weigh men down with burdens that are hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. My friends, they must have enjoyed Watching other men squirm at trying to keep the regulations that they themselves were working the loopholes to find a way around. They were unwilling to lift the burdens. They were unwilling to lift one finger to lighten the load. And oh, my friends, how contrary that sort of practice, that sort of mentality is to what we find in the gospel. You see, in the gospel, we find that God himself is willing to lighten our load we find that jesus says come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest jesus calls for us to trust in him and then he does all of the heavy lifting he lived the righteous life that we could not live he bore the burdens that would otherwise crush us he didn't just lift a finger he allowed his whole body to be lifted up on the cross of calvary bearing the wrath of god in our place and my friends jesus has lifted the burden for you so friends hear me on this what an outside only religion can't lift a finger to do god has lifted his own son to do for you Oust your outside only religion and trust in him. Jesus will save you. Jesus will make you clean. Jesus will give you hope and purpose. Don't be content with the cheap, phony, outside only substitutes. Trust in him and find something greater than what an outside only religion can offer. Find a relationship with a God who loves you and longs to lead you down paths of righteousness from the redemption you experience on the inside. Outside only religion is content to condemn and that's not consistent with God's heart. That's the fifth reason you must oust your outside only religion. Here's the sixth. Outside only religion can't stand a challenge. In verses 47 to 51, Jesus addresses yet another hypocritical facet of the Pharisees and the scribes. They were known to build and to decorate the tombs of the prophets. This was their way of kind of honoring the prophets who had lived in a generation before them. They thought if we build their tombs for those that we don't have tombs for, or we decorate the tombs of those that we do have tombs for, we'll be honoring the legacy of these prophets. They put on the facade as though they were honoring those former generations however it was their very fathers who had killed the prophets 
Jesus says. And here I don't believe Jesus is just saying only that these individuals were physical blood descendants of those who had killed and murdered the prophets. They were spiritual descendants of those individuals as well. Like their fathers, they didn't want anyone from God calling out their sinful hearts. They didn't want anyone telling them that they needed to turn away from their inside-only sort of evils. And so Jesus, speaking as the very manifestation of God's wisdom in verses 49 to 51, reveals God's plan for these prophets. And it's a devastating plan, my friends. He declares that God intends to send them prophets and apostles, but God knows what they will do with those prophets and apostles. They'll do the same thing that their physical and their spiritual fathers have done with those prophets who lived in their day. They will kill some of them, and they will persecute others. Why will God allow that to happen? So that they would have no excuse on the day of judgment that was to come. In fact, Jesus says, God is doing this in verse 50. He says, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And Jesus even mentions the A to Z, so to speak, of murdered, martyred prophets. That's bookended by Abel. If you remember, Abel, very early in God's creation, was killed by his brother Cain out of a jealousy that he had brought a more acceptable sacrifice And then Zechariah is on the other end of the bookend, who was the final Old Testament prophet to be martyred. Jesus says that the blood of all of those prophets along all of that span will be upon this generation that he is speaking to. In addition to the blood of the apostles and the prophets who were yet to come. And this generation of outside-only religious zealots after Jesus ascended to heaven, continued to persecute God's messengers. They continued to put them to death and to drive them into exile from James and Stephen, as we see in the book of Acts, to pretty much every other apostle that lived and many other servants of God who have lived since that time. And I'll say that I believe that the judgment that Jesus speaks of here in these verses has a double sense to it. How so? Well, in AD 70... While many in that generation that Jesus was speaking to here at this moment were still alive, the Roman army brought about a swift destruction of Galilee and then Jerusalem shortly thereafter. Rome surrounded that holy city during the Passover and the following invasion against the Jews left what historians of that day described as the stench of hundreds of thousands of dead bodies that tainted other cities even miles away and that judgment was great why would God do that why would God hold this generation accountable for the blood of all of those prophets who had lived before them shed since the foundation of the world well here's the reason because all of those prophets pointed to this one prophet who stood before them Jesus was the very promise that every prophet had promised he was and is and will be the fulfillment of all of God's promises and yet like their fathers before them they rejected Jesus they rejected God's final answer to their greatest problem they had greater revelation from God 
than any of their forefathers had experienced, and yet it was not enough for them. In fact, after this encounter, we find in verses 53 and 54 that when Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects and to plot against him, to catch him in something that he might say. They grow in their thirst for the greatest prophet who ever lived and his blood. So God held them accountable with a great destruction. You see, these, the only prophets that these individuals admired were those who were too dead to confront their own sin. Either because they were physically dead or because they had explained away the sin in their lives through loopholes. And friends, I just want to tell you, if you want to find someone who will give you a loophole for the sin in your life, there are abundant false prophets for you in our day. I mean, if you want a message that makes you feel like you're happy-go-lucky headed on a cushioned road to heaven, you can find it. But that's not what's best for any of us. If we truly believe that there is a talking God, and I believe that, that there is, if we truly believe that he has revealed himself in his scriptures, if we truly believe that one has risen from the dead as a confirmation of all that he has revealed to us, then, my friends, we ought to care what his word says. And we ought not be looking for the prophets who are going to explain away the loopholes of our wickedness. But let us not forget that the danger that this generation that Jesus spoke to here is a danger to us as well. We may decorate the tombs of the prophets in our own way. You know, many of us wear crosses just to cherish the place where Jesus died. I've got crosses on my ring as an example. And that's good, but it's not good enough on its own. Holding Jesus in high regard will not substitute for yielding your life and your eternity into his loving hands. And so that's why I say I believe there's a dual sense of the condemnation that Jesus pronounces upon this generation in this passage. Like the Pharisees and scribes, we have a greater revelation than the generations that have gone before us had. But the Bible says in Hebrews 2, 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is we will not. As God has revealed for us at the end of this time, a greater judgment than Jerusalem ever saw is headed for those who are apart from Christ. And the blood of the prophets will be on your head if you, coming week after week, hear the message of the good news of God's favor, acting to send his son to die for our sins and be risen to life evermore as a promise that all those who turn from their sins and put their trust in him allow his grace to give them eternal life. If you hear that message, that greater revelation, and you do not repent and place your hope in Jesus, you will likewise face a devastating, eternal punishment. And so I ask you, my friends, will the blood of the prophets be charged against you? And I'm here to warn you on the basis of God's word, don't settle for an outside-only religion. Yield your life to Jesus and be saved. Because outside-only religion can't stand a challenge. That's the sixth reason why you must outside your Oust your outside-only religion. Here's the seventh and final one. 
Outside-only religion hides God's hope and hinders the helpless. We say that again. Outside-only religion hides God's hope and hinders the helpless. The final one that Jesus gives here in verse 52 is a summary of what their legalistic, self-righteousness-seeking system has led them into. They who gave the outward impression that they held the key of knowledge had in fact taken the key of knowledge and had not entered in, Jesus says. And they were now hindering those who desired to enter in. You know, what worse thing could you say to someone who had committed himself to helping others to understand spiritual truths than not only did you not enter into the truth yourself, but you hindered others who are trying to enter. You're blocking the way to God. And you know, that's what outside-only religion does. It hides God's hope, and it hinders the helpless. And you know, I just want to say, Some of you have encountered this thing in your own life. Some of you maybe grew up in a household or you grew up in a church where you were told that you had to obey these strict obligations. And in your attempt to live through those obligations, you came to the point where you said, this is helpless. Like there's no hope for me. Or maybe you even had somebody who was living an outside-only religion tell you that. Maybe you had somebody to tell you, you'll never amount to anything. You're worthless. You'll never be used by God. But I want to tell you, my friends, don't buy that lie. Don't buy that lie. Because an individual who's telling you that sort of thing, an individual who's trying to get you to live with that level of precision as though you can earn your own righteousness, is an individual who has taken away the key of what God really wants you to see. And my friends, the key of what God really wants you to see is that he has sent a Savior for you. He has sent one who could keep the righteous religious obligations that you could not keep. He has sent Jesus to redeem you. And what we could not do on our own, God sent his son to do. The righteousness that we could not earn, God sent his son to die for our sins so that he could declare us righteous in Christ. And I don't care who you are or where you've been or what obligations you've tried to keep and how many times you've found yourself to be a failure and how many times you've been told that you're not worthy enough, I want to tell you that God can redeem you. And God will redeem you. And his son has come that you might be the delight of his heart. That you might know that his way is open to you. That his key is ready to unlock the door. That his grace is an abundant supply. And that you too, my friends, if you will turn from your sins and entrust your life to Christ, can find eternal peace. Do you know that, friends? Would you bow with me in a moment of silent reflection? All heads bowed, no, nobody's looking. Is that you? Like, like, have you been in the midst of the struggle of trying to live it out on your own? H- have you found how unworthy you are? Has, has your soul been crushed under the weight of the burdens 
that others have placed upon you, friends, I want you to know that Jesus has come to take that load. Jesus has come to grant life in the midst of that struggle. And so if that's you today, I believe that God's word calls for a response. And so when I preach, I don't like to preach without giving you an opportunity to respond. But if that's you, if you've been living on the performance track and you need to find that not religion but relationship is God's key to eternal life, if you need to find that Jesus is ready and willing to be your Savior, if you need new life and forgiveness and hope, then I just want in the silence of these moments, and I'm not going to take long, let's take 20 seconds here. If God's impressing upon your heart in these 20 seconds that you need to make a response, that you need to give your life to Him, then I'm just going to ask you to slip up your hand wherever you are. Beginning now, starting 20 seconds, God's calling you to respond. Turn away from your own efforts. Thank you. And cling to his son as the one who would forgive you. Race, slip that hand up. Ten more seconds. Thank you. All right. I want you to know, those of you that did take the opportunity to raise your hand there, if you'll, if you'll just catch me after the service or, or just take a minute to write something down, you don't, maybe you're not the kind of person who likes a lot of social interaction with the crowd around, just write down your information on a card and swing it by to me or slide it under my office door and I'll be happy to reach out in the coming week. But God grants to us life. He grants to us peace. And these things are freely available to all thanks to what Jesus has done. So let's be sure to deal with that. And all you've really got to do is say, Jesus, I'm calling out to you to be my Savior. I'm going to turn my life to you. I'm going to entrust all that I am and all that I have for all of my future to you. And I want to tell you, no matter who you are, whether you raised your hand or not, that's God's promise to you that Jesus has paid it all. We yield ourselves to him, and he takes all the burden for us.